a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, the battle for your mind, it's a, it's a real thing. I'm not here to tell you what to think, but I am here to offer what I hope will be some nutritious food for thought. What you do with it, well, that's really up to you. Although I, I will admit, I'll be kind of disappointed if it turns into a food fight. I'm just saying. Very disappointed. Nonetheless, glad you could join us today. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. So, where to begin today? You know, I thought, I, I, I know there are so many choices, and, and there's so much information. I thought, would it be fun if we just spent some time talking about that time when UFOs shut down and disabled U.S. nuclear missile sites? Wouldn't that be cool? Huh? Huh? But then I think, no, that's that's really not the focus of of what this program is about. It's interesting, to put it mildly. It's pretty sensational. But how does it actually improve your life? I'm not saying it's a bad thing if you want to pursue that. I'm just saying to get a feel of what's going on around us, you've got to be willing to do your own digging. You can't just be content to repeat what other people have said. I Actually, I saw something earlier today to, to kind of illustrate this, and hopefully... I don't want this to come off as condescending, like, well, you know, if you think about things, you know, from this lofty, thinner air where I reside, you know, then uh, somehow you're going you're gonna to see things differently. It's more of a matter of a lot of times we aren't aware of what we don't know, so it's just easier to follow the path of least resistance. Um, Tom Cranawitter is one of my friends on Facebook, and this guy is uh, one of my favorite philosophers, too just because he can distill some real wisdom into very, very few words. And this is something that he posted recently that I thought was worth sharing. He says, many people are familiar with Plato's allegory of the cave. If you're not, you can Google it. It's, it's a pretty easy read. The, the gist of what, what Plato's allegory is, is that when it comes to knowledge, many of us are like prisoners who are in a cave chained down, and we're watching flickering images on the wall. Now, he was talking about basically a fire which cast light and people who were holding up puppets or otherwise doing shadow puppets that uh, that would represent, you know, a show for the people who were prisoners down there in the cave. And for many of the prisoners, what they see is just simply these flickering images on the wall. Isn't it interesting that he used that as as his analogy? Just considering what we sit around and watch, you know, on a daily basis. I thought that was kind of fascinating. But at some point, some of those prisoners find their way up and out of the cave. And when they get out of the cave, first of all, their eyes are are very, you know, they're hurting because of the sunlight, so it's very painful. Oh, my goodness, what is this? I'm emerging into sunlight. And they start to look around them, and they realize there's an entire world that I was not even aware of. Because all I thought about reality was just those flickering shapes on the wall along with my fellow prisoners. That's all we ever really understood until we undertook the effort to climb out of that cave 
and to, to stand in the light. And of course, once you've done that, if you're a good person, you're going to feel an obligation to go back and to help your fellow prisoners find their way up out of the cave to the light. So in a nutshell, that's, uh, that's more or less Plato's allegory of the cave. Now, Tom Cranowitter says, look, a lot of people are familiar with the allegory, but what a lot of people don't realize is that they are in the cave. Many people are in the cave right now, today, at this moment. And of the many people in the cave, very few, by which he means almost none, are aware that they're in the cave. In fact, just the opposite. They think they're rebels. They think they are independent minds, free from the establishment, free from the orthodoxy. They think they are free thinkers. They think they departed the cave and they're standing in the sunlight, seeing with their own eyes what things truly are. But he says they're completely unaware that where they are now intellectually required little work and no real risk, unlike Socrates, who was lawfully executed for his thoughts. And they almost don't notice that the opinions they hold are the very same opinions offered by higher education, the media, the chattering political class, big crony corporations, cultural influencers, and all the authoritative voices they admire. They think they're like Socrates when really they're the opposite of Socrates. And Tom Cranowitter asks the question, is that comedy or tragedy or both? So the goal here is not to make you feel like, you know, you are uh, dumber than you thought you were, but simply to recognize that uh, each of us at some point has to be willing to admit that's a subject that's over my head, or that's something that I don't know, which is not a bad thing. It's okay to be ignorant if you can at least say, okay, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm willing to look deeper into the matter. And that's the key. Are you willing to take the action? Are you willing to become better informed? Because what Tom Cranowitter is pointing out is if you have not paid the price, if you haven't done the home, the, the hard work, and homework, of owning your own worldview. There's a really good chance that maybe you're dependent on what other people are telling you. Okay, now why am I saying this? Why am I sharing this with you? Why am I telling you what to think? Well, actually, that's the point. I'm not here to tell you what to think. It's not my prerogative. It's not my prerogative to tell you, you know, you have to think this way or you're a bad person. And at the risk of sounding like, you know, someone who has the answers here, I don't have all the answers, but I I can honestly say I have put in the hard work of climbing out of the cave and having a look around. And I'm happy to report there is a whole world out there waiting to be discovered. I'm in the process of discovering it right now. And I've returned to the cave numerous times to invite people to please Come and consider for themselves if there isn't something more to, to see. Now, I'm talking about this in the context of maybe there's another way to look at uh, this particular situation or this particular conflict that goes beyond rah, rah, red state, rah, rah, blue state. Because that's the rut where a lot of people get stuck. So in the course of today's show, we're going to have a couple of different uh, couple of different things to talk about. We're going to talk about why sometimes being a quitter is actually a good thing. 
And if you've been finding yourself overwhelmed or feeling hopeless from all the division around us, this is a message I think you're going to really appreciate. We'll talk about uh, the path of least resistance and why our lives are too important to be ruled by political differences. Got a fascinating story here about, uh, I, I don't know if you remember when cochlear implants came out. I think it was 1990 when they were actually approved by the FDA as a way of helping the hearing impaired, helping the deaf hear where they'd never heard before. Groundbreaking stuff. I think this became pretty common knowledge after Rush Limbaugh went stone deaf and then had cochlear implants done and was able to resume his, his hosting duties. Did you realize, though, that there were people who actually fought against that way to help the deaf hear? And it was part of, it was groups that were part of deaf culture. And they felt like, hey, this is genocidal. You're trying to wipe out our identity. You're trying to, you're trying to pretend like having five senses is better than having four senses. Maybe that's just part and parcel for identity politics. But I've got a fascinating story I'll be sharing with you in the course of today's show that talks about this as well. I think we're going to start today, though, with uh, what, what would happen if we looked around us and recognize that there was actually a lot of good going on, and there could be more of that good if government would simply get out of the way for us. Got a great article from John Stossel. I'll share that coming up in just a few moments. As we go to break, a quick note here from my sponsor, lifesavingfood.com. Look, uh, the, the, there, there's no avoiding the facts. Prices are going up. You see it in the grocery store. You're going to see it in food storage as well. There's still time to stock up. There are still great deals to be had. And my listeners still get a remarkable discount if they purchase their food storage through lifesavingfood.com. Go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on the sponsor links. You'll find one that takes you directly to lifesavingfood.com. And if it's something that's a priority to you, consider acting sooner than later. I think we're at a point right now where we're seeing some breakdowns in the supply chain. And if there's something that you think you're going to need or that you know you're going to be needing in the next year that you would like to have on hand, this is probably the time to go ahead and get it. And then enjoy the peace of mind of knowing that you've got it. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. First, we decide where we want to go. Then we need to know the best way to get there. Hi, my name is Adam Barada. I'm the owner of Advantage Gold. We're the highest rated precious metals firm in the country. We teach people how to own physical gold and silver. Now, we've won the Best of Trust Link Award four years in a row because we educate our clients on how to buy gold and silver the right way. We don't pay celebrity spokespeople millions of dollars. We'd rather pass that value on to you. Call 800-900-8000 and speak with one of our experts. We'll send you a free gold kit along with my latest number one national best-selling book, The Great Devaluation. Call 800-900-8000. That's 800-900-8000. Get the best information, the best process, the best service, the best value. Call Advantage Gold at 800-900-8000. Call 800-900-8000. 
I'm Dinesh D'Souza. If you are a homeowner, you need to consider a mortgage refinance while rates are still low. I mean it. You could miss out on hundreds of dollars in monthly savings. Don't let that happen. Call American Financing, America's home for home loans. And take advantage of a free mortgage review. There's no pressure, no upfront or hidden fees. They're not like that. This is a company that's in it for you, doing whatever it takes to save you up to $1,000 a month. Without resetting your loan. Because at American Financing, they can write any term 10 years and over. So don't put a refinance off any longer. Pre qualify for free by calling 888 528 1219. That's 888 528 1219. Or visit AmericanFinancing.net. American Financing, NMLS 182334, NMLSConsumerAccess.org. Hi, I'm Wayne Alaroot for Patriot VPN. Patriot VPN is a virtual private network service that uses military-grade encryption to protect your Internet connection on all of your devices. With Patriot VPN, your data and Internet privacy is secure anywhere in the world. Why do you need Patriot VPN? Cyber criminals, government, even your own Internet service provider collect and use your private information without your knowledge. Examples in the news recently, remember all the companies that have been hacked? Cuba censored the Internet to kill protests? Here in America, conservative groups are being actively targeted. Your personal information and internet history is being sold by your ISP. It's all happening every day, but not with Patriot VPN. With Patriot VPN, your internet activity and history is protected from prying eyes forever. Patriot VPN is a veteran-owned business right here in the USA. For business or your family, starting at only $6.95 a month, use code WAR and get three months free with an annual subscription. It's all at PatriotVPN.com. That's PatriotVPN.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, just like that, we are back. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers, wherever you happen to be catching the show. You know, good news seems to be in short supply these days, but I've got a nice reality check from John Stossel. Come to count on this guy for for being able to look at things from just a slightly different angle that uh, that really brings uh, some perspective, some needed perspective. And Stossel points out that there would be a lot more good news in our lives if government would simply get out of the way when innovators are working to improve our lives. He says, there's so much negative news these days that I was glad to see a new podcast, American Optimist, features good things that are coming. Now, it's hosted by Palantir founder and venture capitalist Joe Lonsdale. And he interviews entrepreneurs like Sal Churi, who funds companies like Icon, which found a way to 3D print homes in just one day. It's a very cool process to watch, by the way, and he has a link to the video in this uh, story, which you'll find in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Now, Stossel says fast home building is such a good thing for poor people who want an affordable house. But unfortunately... Sal Churi has to struggle to get past government's rigid zoning and safety regulations. In fact, Lonsdale says it's actually impossible to do 3D printing of homes with modern technology because government regulation is making it impossible. Now, Stossel tells him, hey, that infuriates me. I keep seeing these wonderful new things we can't have because of regulations that don't matter. 
And Lonsdale replies, we'd probably have twice as big of an economy if we didn't have bad regulations. So if innovators finally do get past the regulators, we'll get lots of cool things. Now, maybe some of this is wishful thinking, but listen to this list. People predicted flying cars for years. Now it may actually happen because Lonsdale's friend, Paul Ciara, Pinterest's co-founder, invested in Joby Aviation, which built a small helicopter that looks like a flying car, and he hopes it'll be used as, a, as an air taxi. Now, Lonsdale says it's about 100 times quieter than a helicopter, goes about 200 miles on a charge, safer, much quieter, and the idea is to use this as a commuting vehicle. In fact, he says, I'm pretty excited as we start to scale this out. Another Lonsdale friend is Elon Musk, whose boring company, yes, you heard that correct, hopes to create faster ways to move traffic by building tunnels. But again, it's hard to get such new transportation past the bureaucrats' rules. Digging tunnels today actually often costs more and takes longer, even though construction equipment is much better. Lonsdale says the EPA is going to insist that you do these studies that take four or five years. It's almost like they delight in delaying you. Well, of course they do. That's their job, right? Stossel says Musk is the rare entrepreneur who triumphs over regulations, sometimes by ignoring them. Now, thankfully, in new fields like neurotechnology, innovators sometimes escape stupid rules because regulators don't understand what they're doing. Musk's company, Neuralink, invented technology that lets us control things with our minds. He says, on our Stossel, our Stossel TV video on Lonsdale includes a Neuralink video clip showing a monkey playing a video game just by thinking. And soon this technology could help paralyzed people do new things. It could even someday help us communicate without speaking. Th- without speaking, rather. We'll just think to each other. I know, I'm seeing the downside of that too, especially if you've got a little temper going on there. Now, Lonsdale's podcast also includes Rick Klausner, a scientist who founded Grail, which designed a blood test that detects 50 types of cancer. But it's not available to us yet because the Federal Trade Commission blocked a merger with the company that would be selling it. Lonsdale complains this could be saving over a 1,000 lives a month right now by detecting early cancers. He interviews Maureen Hillenmeyer, founder of Hexagon Bio, which turns fungi into drugs that fight cancer. But of course, those drugs may need 10 years to get approval from the Food and Drug Administration. And Lonsdale says it definitely does not need to be 10 years. Competition of ideas is very important. And he says, when I'm in charge of the federal government, I'm going to have the FDA compete against itself and have multiple competing and competing agencies. Now, Stossel says, will, will Lonsdale actually be in charge of the government? Probably not. Would competition make bureaucrats less slow and sleepy? Well, the answer there is probably yes. So Lonsdale says, we are living in one of the most exciting times. The quality of life we have, even during COVID, is so much higher than anything humanity experienced, and it's only going to get better. And John Stossel says, I'm glad such optimists exist. Okay, I would have to agree. Yeah, I'm glad that such optimists exist as well. But in order to get to that point where there's, there's not this uh, stifling effect, a giant wet blanket being thrown over the top of every innovation, 
We've got to adjust our thinking. And part of this comes back to people like you and me. I learned about something called permissionless innovation a few years ago. And it's one of those concepts that I'm just, I'm praying will catch on. Because right now, if you have something truly innovative, and it could be, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm going to use the example of like Uber or one of the ride-sharing services. There's a big regulatory battle that had to be fought because there were existing companies, taxi companies to be specific, who paid big money to the government. We'll take New York City, for example, in order to have their taxi medallions. This is their permission, their, their official badge, if you will, that they have permission to operate from the government. And then along comes this disruptive, innovative technology. Well, what if we were able to come up with an app that allowed you to call up someone driving their own private vehicle who happened to be near you, and you could get a ride from them? And this app would connect you with them and have a picture of them in their car so you know what you're looking for. They would have a picture of you so that they know what they're looking for. You agree to meet up. They agree to take you where you need to go. You pay them. It's all done electronically. Amazing. I say this because I've used Rideshare a lot in the last few years, and it's, it's one of the greatest things ever if you're in a city where you don't know your way around. So much easier than running a car. So much easier than trying to find parking. So much easier than trying to navigate, uh, you know, again, in unfamiliar territory. But isn't it curious how hard various states and municipalities fought that ride-sharing technology? They've come to kind of an uneasy, you know, truce with it. Well, as long as we can tax you and, you know, make some money off it, we want our cut, you know. Okay, well, then, like the mafia, they'll, they'll need their cut in order for you to, to do business. But there's so much innovation out there. And what if the default setting was, of course, as long as you're not harming other people, like measurably harming other people, <clears throat> as long as you're not defrauding them or otherwise harming their property, you should be free to innovate and bring it forward and let the market decide, is this something that we want or not? But instead, we've kind of flipped that on its head to where, well, we've got to go and ask permission, and this regulatory agency or that regulatory agency is going to have to conduct studies and push a bunch of paper around, and then once they're satisfied that, okay, this could be viable, maybe you can pay them for permission to implement your great idea. It's cumbersome. It's, it's needless. And, and the saddest truth of all is it really doesn't make you any safer. It's not protecting you from potential fraud or, you know, bad actors in the market. What's the saying? Caveat emptor. Let the buyer beware. That's the idea that needs to rule the free market. You might find some people who, uh, you know, will take advantage and will otherwise, you know, cut corners or be slipshod in the way they do things. But the market won't support such people. And they'll quickly change their ways or they'll go out of business. But what we don't need is another layer of government bureaucracy. Check out the link to Stossel's article. It's in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I just want to give a quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. So many people moving to the, the Beehive State. I'm also seeing it where I live in southern Idaho. In fact, I saw an article on, on KSL yesterday saying that uh, home prices have actually gone up in Utah so much that it's, it's just astonishing. The people who track these things, are, are their, their jaws are hanging open in awe at how much real estate prices have, have gone up because of this exodus of people coming to the Intermountain West. And they noted that Utah is second only to Idaho in terms of, you know, how much those property values have increased. So if you are moving to the great state of Utah and you find a home that you want to to purchase, you're not going to have the option of sitting around, you know, trying to make up your mind or otherwise, you know, dilly-dallying trying to, to get your financing in order. If it's a desirable home, it's going to get snapped up Quickly, which means you need your home loan without delay, which which means you need Patriot Home Mortgage and especially the Heather Turner team. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Of course, Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You can call her at 435-703-4522. So one of the things that I have noticed primarily about myself is that I take a lot of things for granted. And it's partly because... I often don't have a clear understanding of, for instance, where stuff comes from. And this is very true, by the way, of people in positions of power as well, who think they can run society by their command. Politicians, you know, you you think you have an understanding of where stuff comes from, and that's not necessarily the case. My friend Ruben sent me an article the other day. This is from ZeroHedge.com. Where stuff comes from. And this was actually from the Doomberg Substack. And it starts with a quote from El Gato Malo that says, This dovetails in sinister fashion with the basic idea that any sufficiently advanced technology cannot be distinguished from magic. Highly evolved capitalism becomes such a technology that, and the largesse and plenty it produces gets mistaken for, the pro- for a property of the universe rather than a made thing, a thing that must be created rather than simply reaped. Now, this article really goes down an interesting path. And it says, modern society is awash in stuff. There's stuff at the grocery store, at the hardware store, at Amazon, at eBay. We eat stuff, we wear stuff, we buy stuff, and store stuff. Click some buttons, swipe a card, tap a phone, and presto, stuff appears like magic. At least for now. Now, we are a carbon-based species. Carbon forms the foundations of our bodies and the external world we experience. Almost everything we touch is carbon-based. In fact, the author here says, As I type this, I'm sitting on a couch made predominantly from foamed polyurethane, my feet resting on a carpet made from synthetic nylon. I just sipped water from a bottle made of polyethylene how do you even say it, terephthalate? Anyway, <clears throat> which I then placed on a coffee table made of wood. So not only is our stuff mostly based on carbon, but the energy required to manipulate materials to make stuff comes predominantly from carbon-based feedstocks as well. So while not all stuff is based itself on carbon, copper wires made of copper, after all, 
but we can't make use of it without first extracting energy from carbon fuels. In other words, we can't mine copper without carbon. Those excavators, dump trucks, and bulldozers aren't going to run themselves. Since energy is life, mastering the chemistry of carbon and harnessing the energy of stuff to make other stuff is core to the human endeavor. So they set out to develop a very grossly simplified mental model. And it starts with picturing a four-rung ladder. Now, because of gravity, it takes energy to climb a ladder, but a fall from, to fall from one is actually kind of a spontaneous event. You let go of your grip, and you'll soon be introducing yourself to the ground. In a way, interchanging between chemical compounds is analogous to our ladder. Sometimes going from one chemical compound to another releases energy, just like falling down the ladder. Whereas going in the opposite direction requires putting energy in like climbing the ladder. Just replace the word gravity with enthalpy, and you can begin to sound scientific. Now, at the top rung of our ladder sits methane, more commonly known as natural gas. Among the hydrocarbons, methane has the most embedded energy. Way down below, on the ground, sits carbon dioxide. When you burn methane fully... You react it with oxygen and produce CO2 and water as products. That reaction gives off an enormous amount of useful energy. The increased force of hitting the ground from the top rung rather than the lower ones. But once you hit the ground, you have no further to fall. In other words, CO2 is a thermodynamic sink. Now the next rung down down from methane is oil. And while oil is a complex mixture... For our simplistic purposes, you can think of it as partially burned methane. So oil still has a lot of potential energy. Falling from that height would hurt. But unlike methane, it's an easily transported liquid at room temperature and pressure. As such, oil serves many purposes for which methane is unsuitable. However, when compared to methane, you have to burn more oil to get the same amount of useful energy thus producing more CO2 on an equivalent basis. Further down still, you find coal. Coal is even more oxidized than oil, sitting closer to the ground. And it's also quite dirty, filled with all matter of nasty impurities. But coal is cheap and solid. You can literally dig it out of the ground with a pick and shovel, which was done for many decades. The lowest rung of the ladder is wood. Wood, like all plant stuff, is the direct product of photosynthesis. So are coal and oil, of course. Wood just died more recently. In a highly inefficient process, nature starts with CO2 and begins to climb the ladder using sunshine as the fuel. But it doesn't get very far. Now, having said that, wood is a fantastic raw material for all kinds of useful stuff, and vegetation is the food that powers all humans, either directly or indirectly. So it makes intuitive sense that if we're using carbon-based materials as a source of energy, we'd want to be on the highest rung possible. That's in fact how societies evolve. Wood burning gives way to coal, which eventually gives way to oil, and then natural gas as societies can afford cleaner environments. Now natural gas is by far the cleanest burning fuel. You can use it directly in your kitchen without ventilation for a reason. Now, nobody would advise firing up the charcoal barbecue indoors. 
But what's less well known is the same concept holds if you're using carbon-based materials to make stuff, not just power it. Almost all synthetic materials in modern life start near the top of the ladder and are engineered downward in a controlled burn. And this makes intuitive sense. The embedded energy to run the process is at least partially inherent in the starting material. Certain high-value materials are worth pushing up the ladder to obtain, but the industry evolved the way it did for a reason. It's easier to, sl- easier to slowly slide down than it is to climb up. So, for instance, take polyethylene. That's the highest-volume production plastic in the world. To say polyethylene is ubiquitous is an understatement. Milk jugs, garbage bags, food packaging, wire and cable applications, pipes. Polyethylene is everywhere. Industrially, polyethylene is made by sliding down the ladder. Ethane is converted to ethylene, which is then polymerized. Ethane is close to natural gas on our ladder, while polyethylene has the same inherent energy as oil. And in theory, polyethylene could be made from corn, but then that involves climbing the ladder with big steps. Corn is made from CO2 on the farm and has an energy content close to wood. To make polyethylene from corn, you first need to produce corn ethanol. And ethanol's higher up the ladder than corn, roughly in line with coal, but still much lower than polyethylene. Now, thankfully, the article has some really nice um, visual aids to, to illustrate this. But the idea is that you have to jump yet another full rung, and while it's possible, it simply doesn't make sense, even with substantial government support. We grow corn because we need to eat. We burn ethanol as a minor additive in gasoline because the government tells us to. And even with that level of political support, it still can't take us all the way to polyethylene. Now, so this this is an interesting explanation, and hopefully you're not lost on it yet. I understand. There's, there's a lot of twists and turns. I really recommend, look at the article, look at the visual aids. When we come back from the break... We're going to relate this to how stuff is made, where stuff comes from. Because, again, this is something we take for granted. Every time you and I go to a big box store, or a small box store for that matter, we look for the items we're looking for, we're grateful when they're there, we grumble when they aren't. But I would say very few of us fully appreciate what it takes to get them there, from raw materials to finished product. This is The Brian Hyde Show. You know, a lot of times you have to choose between something high quality or something that saves you money. But if you can get both, why not? Especially when it comes to health care. And that's MediShare. You get both. The typical family saves 500 bucks a month switching to MediShare. And that's huge. But it's also true that people are way more satisfied after making the switch, too. The customer satisfaction rate for MediShare is double that of the typical health insurance plan. Double. It's because MediShare works. It's been around for more than a quarter century, and members have shared more than $3 billion of each other's bills. People love having telehealth and a huge PPO network. So, yeah, really, you could save a ton and like it better. Imagine being happy with how you're taking care of your health care. If you're self-employed or part of the gig economy, or you just want a plan you're happy with, you can call right now and get a price within two minutes. Here is the number you need. Call 833-34-BIBLE. That's 833-34-BIBLE. 833-34-BIBLE. 
The following are real-life stories from Trinity Debt Management. My story begins with debt, a lot of debt. I used my credit cards as a source of income. It was not a good situation. I couldn't pay my bills. The interest on the cards was really high. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. I initially was scared to call, and immediately I felt relieved. They contacted all of our creditors, and they put us on a plan for success. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. I've been able to pay off close to $15,000. We're doing a lot better. Please pick up the phone and see how affordable and easy it is to pay off your debt. It's a godsend. We're debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. That's 1-800-990-6976. When thinking about life insurance, my accident reinforced you never know what tomorrow might bring. That's why I reached out to AccuQuote. AccuQuote helps people find a life insurance policy that meets their needs. Since 1986, they've helped millions of folks save up to 60% on their life insurance by comparing the rates and features of dozens of top-rated life insurance products. A healthy 50-year-old non-smoker can buy a half a million dollars of 10-year level term for less than 45 bucks a month. A 60-year-old under 120 bucks a month. Longer or permanent terms are available. Even if you already own life insurance, you really need to check out my friends at AccuQuote. Don't worry about health issues. Remember, they help me. As a pastor, I'm concerned about your soul and helping you to make sure your family is taken care of. Life insurance is more affordable now than ever, so don't make them wish you'd made that call. 877-437-4781. Call now, 877-437-4781. 877-437-4781. policy forms and availability vary by state. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Still sharing this amazing article that uh, my friend and listener Ruben shared with me. Where stuff comes from. And I got to admit, you know, I I appreciate or at least I try to be grateful for, for what I need and what I have. But I've never really stopped to think about all the different things, the choices that have to be made in order to to get what we need, starting with those basic building blocks. And and I'm just going to touch on this briefly, and then I'm going to move on. Where does stuff come from? Well, the author here says, as you can probably guess, it mostly comes from unwanted byproducts of the oil and gas industry, very high up that ladder. Take the aforementioned ethane. Many natural gas fields produce what is known as wet gas. And the predominant product is methane, but a little ethane, propane, and heavier cats and dogs are included in the mix. Those impurities are collectively known as natural gas liquids. And they're a critical feedstock that enables much of the chemical industry. So one person's annoying impurity is another's treasured input. Ethylene is fed to a cracker. Now we're talking about a catalytic cracker, which uh, produces ethylene. Ethylene is one of perhaps a half dozen ultra-critical chemicals that form the foundation of virtually all the stuff we make. The author says, I can walk around a city block and perform a retrosynthetic analysis of almost everything I see and find my way back to a cracker. Crackers operate on an almost unimaginable scale. And there's a picture here of ExxonMobil's new cracker. And these are, again, these are catalytic cracking towers. So if you think oil refinery, 
Okay, that's that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. This cracker in Baytown, Texas, is rated for more than 1.5 million tons per year. That's more than 3 billion pounds. And a couple of crackers produce roughly a pound of ethylene per year for every living person on the planet. That's a lot of stuff. Now, as the opening quote from the piece uh, states so well, we live in a time where very few people understand how things get made. And it's fine to not know where stuff comes from, but it isn't fine to not know where stuff comes from when you're dictating to the rest of us, here's how the economy ought to run. So in some small way, the author says, I'm hoping this piece will educate a few influential minds to participate in a better informed debate. Why? Okay, here's the payoff. Because we're experiencing the early phases of runaway inflation. On what seems like a daily basis, we observe critical inputs into our economy going vertical in price. If you crimp the supply of critical inputs with no workable plan to replace them, inflation is the unavoidable outcome. Energy is stuff. Energy is life. What's the price elasticity of demand for life and who can afford to pay it? Nobody could have seen this coming, they'll say. But the author says we did. Good stuff. So here's one of the stranger trends catching on in some circles. Have you heard about this? People who wait until they have been sterilized to have sex. I guess they think this is the responsible thing to do. Annie Holmquist has a piece on intellectualtakeout.org called Choosing Children Over Self-Centered Ambitions. And she says there are plenty of double-take headlines out there. One of them showed up on her desk the other day, courtesy of the Daily Beast. The headline said, Meet the people who won't have sex until they're sterilized. Nonchalantly, as if it was the most normal thing in the world, the article laid out the stories of individuals, mostly women, who want nothing to do with children, in the womb or out. And it's not that they dislike children, the article assures us, not at all. Children just aren't the thing for them. And what upsets them is that anyone would question their desire to be sterilized so they never have to bother with little ones. Now, Annie Holmquist says this mindset is probably more prevalent than many realize. We could be staring at a dark future, a demographic winter with miserable old men and women and very few children, sort of like the one envisioned by P.D. James' dystopic dystopic, uh, science fiction novel, The Children of Men. Fantastic movie, by the way. Is there a way out? Well, Annie says there is, but it requires a change in thinking first. Of course, the young people featured in the Daily Beast's article on sterilization appear to be very calm, rational thinkers. They don't believe their desire to be sterilized is irresponsible. In fact, the article's author informs us they feel it's quite responsible, actually, not to complicate a new life by exposing it to their own problems. I think most of us have probably had that conversation with ourselves or maybe with our spouses. Do we really want to bring children into such a messed up world? I recall having that conversation, you know, 28 years ago. And I'm so grateful that my wife and I answered that question with, yeah, let's do it anyway. Life would be so different without without my kids. Fear of climate change is one of the problems cited. Well, the world's overpopulated already. Why fill it with more? Personal character is another challenge. If you know you're lazy and self-centered and you're unlikely to change, why would you su- subject children to that? Annie Holmquist says those who wish to be sterilized complain that society interprets their desire as evidence of psychological problems. 
but she says it's not mental illness, really. It's just the result of propaganda that's fed continually to young people, young women especially, via schools, the media, politicians, and yes, sometimes even their own grandparents and parents. She says our society has bought into the lie that self-fulfillment is the end goal. Women are told that they need to go to college, many, many years of college during their most fertile years, in order to have a career, and that such a career is the only way to satisfaction. They're told that they can have motherhood too, but only one day when they're well-established career-wise and financially, maybe around age 40. Now, those who follow up this plan realize too late that the chances of pregnancy are slim at that age. She says when women do attain motherhood earlier in life, they're made to feel that their work raising children is not worthy, that motherhood is a pain, a chore which will age them early, and that their own personal well-being is more important to cultivate and nurture rather than the life of a child. It's something Alex Riley explores in a recent article for Chronicles magazine while discussing Jordan Peterson's latest book, Beyond Order. Peterson excoriates the destructive taboo in contemporary American society on telling young people, especially young women, the full truth about having children. Riley writes, as a result, motherhood becomes an afterthought, a hobby almost, with women sometimes dismissing it altogether, unaware of how their priorities will likely shift later when it may be too late to act on the change, largely because they've been trained to be self-focused. And then Riley offers a prescription for this problem. Quote, We should expect that 25-year-olds do not understand themselves or life particularly well. But society's elders know better. Yet despite this knowledge, these elders continue to teach young people beliefs that will likely come back to haunt them later in life. This is a condemnable cultural crime. End quote. So Annie Holmquist says, How do we prevent this scenario? where young adults want to be sterilized, where young people in general wait until it's too late to have children. And her answer is that the older generation must change its mindset first. And by older generation, that means everybody from age 40 on up. We need to be the ones telling our children that marriage and family are good and honorable things that they should be seeking after. We ourselves need to be modeling this attitude, welcoming children ourselves, and praising those who sacrifice career and self to pursue the high calling of raising the next generation right. She says enough with the propaganda that selfish ambitions are the goal of life. It's time to realize that selfish sacrifice in raising the next generation is the best gift that we can give ourselves and society in general. I sure love her take on stuff. And this this is no exception. Do you see people around you who, you know, have those those concerns about, uh, well, I don't want to bring kids into the world. It's going to interfere with my career path or it's going to, you know, just subject the world's limited resources to more demands. I don't see a lot of people like that, but I do know some who, who have that. I don't know. I, I'm just one guy and certainly I don't have all the answers. But as I reflect on the things that uh, that most people spend their time being upset about. It's pretty clear to me that the things that we allow to upset us, for the most part, are usually things that don't really matter that much in the long run. 
And this is probably just the old gray-haired man talking here, you know, that uh, has come to this realization. But the stuff that actually does have value, the things that matter right up to and even through the end of life, almost always seem to come back to family. I remember asking an old friend this question a few years ago, uh, not knowing that he would pass away the very next day. I knew that his time was short, but I asked him, Jim, you know, you you may be an atheist, but uh, what do you think the purpose of life is? And his answer was very revealing. He said, it's love. It's to love and to be loved. I think he was right. And I think we'd all be happier if we could make that connection and focus on the stuff that actually does matter. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hi there and welcome to the show. It's true, the battle for your mind is real, and I'm not here to tell you what to think. But I am here to offer, hopefully, thought-provoking content that will cause you to think a little more deeply, a little more clearly, and a lot more independently about the things going on around us. I encourage you to come and find camaraderie and courage, because I believe that uh, within the sound of my voice is uh, a hero. It may be you. Maybe you haven't figured it out yet, but but someone is, is looking for encouragement, and that's what I hope to offer you. And I do it with the help of great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. They make it possible for me to uh, to do this program each day. I appreciate them. There's a link to them in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. If you could show them some love by either doing business with them or just simply letting them know that their message reached your ears that would mean a lot to me. Thank you. Thank you in advance. You know, there are very few things in life that can make us happier and more productive than learning to separate politics from most of our daily activities. Came across a remarkable article by uh, Joaquin Book. This was published on the American Institute for Economic Research. The Route of Least Resistance. And he says, when I was younger, I enjoyed the American teenage drama, The O.C., set in Newport Beach, California. That was a somewhat cheesy, teenage angsty drama involving love and teenage rebellion and a poor and criminally burdened high school kid thrown into the spoiled lives of remarkably wealthy Californians. The puns were fantastic. The one-liners were great. The soundtrack, absolutely perfect. And the characters, beautiful and captivating, and most importantly, there was quite a lot of social wisdom to be found. Now, he says, in one scene in the second season, Alex Kelly, played by a young Olivia Wilde, gives advice to one of the show's main characters, Marissa Cooper, played by Misha Barton, about how to endure conflicts with her mom. Alex says, you know, my mom used to drive me crazy, too, and then one day I decided I just was not going to let it bother me anymore. Marissa says, well, you make it sound so easy. And Alex tells her, no, every time my mom channels Satan, I take a deep breath, count to three, 
give her a big smile, and I say something like, interesting idea, Mom. I'll give that some thought. Her friend asks, and that really works? To which Alex responds, women like that. They thrive on confrontation, but if you refuse to engage, there's not really anything they can do. Now, Joaquin Book says, look, these days I advise people to do the same, with occasional exceptions made only for people who you truly trust and whose meta-values you truly share. Now, this is in contrast with Alexander Solzhenitsyn's line, every man always has has handy a dozen glib little reasons why he is right not to sacrifice himself. And it runs entirely counter to the New Year's wishes I offered for the Swedish libertarian site Kospea, translated here, which says, The challenge before us is this, strike back against evil whenever it reveals itself, in the familiar form of ruling from above or in the sinister form where we ourselves go astray. Speak truth, create value, make your immediate surroundings a little better than how you found it. Undermine evil wherever you can, whenever you can rather, avoid tax whenever you can, ignore immoral laws when nobody sees or if you dare when everyone sees. Enough tiny acts, enough such tiny acts of rebellion and we'll get a better world. Kind of like that philosophy, by the way. He says, then I still thought that the madness and incompetence of 2020 was a parenthetical on the long-run trend of reason's conquest over irrationality, stupidity, and ignorance. But Joaquin Book says something clicked in the months since then. I'm starting to seriously consider that this new normal won't end. It may have been the increasingly infected conversations or rather disconnected monologues over the coronavirus and the measures supposedly enacted to contain it or the blatant power grabs and controlling nature of politicians from one end of the globe to the other. Other definite candidates are the unscientific claims ruling the show about everything from the virus's origin, the cringeworthy measures to prevent its spread, the reinstitution of masks despite ostensibly perfectly working vaccines, the inability of vaccines to liberate us from the controlling grasp that was supposed to last for only a few emergency weeks, or the deeper and harsher crackdowns on dissenters that were creeping up everywhere. Now, he says a few weeks ago, John Sanders in these pages quoted John Stuart Mill to say that passivity by the rest of us allows bad men to flourish. And the, the full passage reads, with Sanders extract highlighted, let not anyone pacify his conscience by the delusion that he can do no harm if he takes no part and forms no opinion. Bad men need nothing more to compass their ends than that good men should look on and do nothing. He is not a good man who, without protest, allows wrong to be committed in his name and with the means which he helps to supply, because he will not trouble himself to use his mind on the subject. It depends on the habit of attending to and looking into public transactions and on the degree of information and solid judgment respecting them that exists in the community whether the conduct of the nation as a nation, both within itself and towards others, shall be selfish, corrupt, and tyrannical, or rational, enlightened, just, and noble. End quote. Now, Joaquin Book says, look, this I believe is right. If everyone follows my controversial advice above, evil will thus triumph. We do need to hash it out, and we do need to object to obvious falsehoods and abuse of power. But he says what we don't need to do is to knowingly turn ourselves into martyrs. 
Note that Mill's qualification depends on the degree of information and solid judgment respecting them that exists in the community. So he's not simply saying that good people ought to speak up against atrocities and it would be a moral failure not to. He's saying that a nation where good information and solid judgments are not respected becomes selfish, corrupt, and tyrannical rather than rational and enlightened, just and noble. So he says America and its fellow Westerners are way past that already, well on our way to that corrupt and tyrannical place that Mill feared. So to have an honest conversation with anybody whose point of view you disagree with requires both of you to live in a universe of shared commitment to truth, of solid judgment respecting them. Changing another's mind or changing your own on the basis of another's argument requires your mind to be open for a person to consider, if ever so slightly, that they might have it wrong. It requires both participants to agree on truth and the search for objective knowledge to be the highest goals. If they do not, arguments serve no purpose. Anything less in your skeptical opposition to the one true faith will only strengthen the fervor with which others hold their convictions with the full arsenal of dehumanizing treatments unleashed upon you. Thus, each and every one of us must weigh whether ousting one's concerns and raising one's objections are worth the societal and personal scorn that you're likely to receive. Yes, we can all find little reasons not to stand up to unjust tyranny, but perhaps those reasons aren't so glib or little, though if anybody would know, it's Solzhenitsyn. Perhaps madness is one, and perhaps the best we conquered believers in reason can do is endure the night and gather our strength for another day. Arthur Herman, in the book on the Viking legacy on today's Scandinavians, showed that this is how many Scandinavians approached World War II, a global disaster they could not avoid, yet neither could do much to prevent. Still, he said, quote, many Scandinavians chose the route of resistance, sometimes quiet, sometimes violent, but always with the aim of remaining true to their national and personal honor, a choice dictated by the imperatives of the Viking heart. Now, the alternative to willingly immolate oneself in a government town square to the sound of a government trumpet blaring, as Judge Napolitano tells it, is to embrace the advice that Alex gives Marissa. When you're faced with infectious disagreements, stare down political zealots and opponents with your friendliest smile and just say, interesting idea. I'll give that some thought. Deflect and hide. Don't engage. Politics, he says, I'm beginning to believe best belongs in the closet rebranded and brought out for this specific, the specific occasion, or perhaps in the bedroom, with those you most trust, love, and respect. But not in public, not with strangers, not with friends, and most certainly not with other people in your community. So regarding politics, he says, purge it from your being as much as you possibly could, and refuse to let political issues invade the areas of our life that we cherish. Politics and political disagreements don't belong there. And he says our lives are too important to be ruled by mostly contrived political disagreements. Okay, there's some very sound advice there. And I think you'll notice the people who are most driven by that dynamic of politics is everything tend to be among the most unhappy people that we will ever know. Show by example there's a better way. Don't be that person. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
You know, a lot of times you have to choose between something high quality or something that saves you money. But if you can get both, why not? Especially when it comes to health care. And that's MediShare. You get both. The typical family saves 500 bucks a month switching to MediShare. And that's huge. But it's also true that people are way more satisfied after making the switch, too. The customer satisfaction rate for MediShare is double that of the typical health insurance plan. Double. It's because MediShare works. It's been around for more than a quarter century, and members have shared more than $3 billion of each other's bills. People love having telehealth and a huge PPO network. So, yeah, really, you could save a ton and like it better. Imagine being happy with how you're taking care of your health care. If you're self-employed or part of the gig economy, or you just want a plan you're happy with, you can call right now and get a price within two minutes. Here is the number you need. Call 833-34-BIBLE. That's 833-34-BIBLE. 833-34-BIBLE. Bible. The following are real life stories from Trinity Debt Management. My story begins with debt, a lot of debt. I used my credit cards as a source of income. It was not a good situation. I couldn't pay my bills. The interest on the cards was really high. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. I initially was scared to call and immediately I felt relieved. They contacted all of our creditors and they put us on a plan for success. Trinity will consolidate your accounts to into one easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. I've been able to pay off close to $15,000. We're doing a lot better. Please pick up the phone and see how affordable and easy it is to pay off your debt. It's a godsend. We're debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. That's 1-800-990-6976. When thinking about life insurance, my accident reinforced you never know what tomorrow might bring. That's why I reached out to AccuQuote. AccuQuote helps people find a life insurance policy that meets their needs. Since 1986, they've helped millions of folks save up to 60% on their life insurance by comparing the rates and features of dozens of top-rated life insurance products. A healthy 50-year-old non-smoker can buy a half a million dollars of 10-year level term for less than 45 bucks a month. A 60-year-old under 120 bucks a month. Longer or permanent terms are available. Even if you already own life insurance, you really need to check out my friends at AccuQuote. Don't worry about health issues. Remember, they help me. As a pastor, I'm concerned about your soul and helping you to make sure your family is taken care of. Life insurance is more affordable now than ever, so don't make them wish you'd made that call. 877-437-4781. Call now, 877-437-4781. 877-437-4781. policy points and availability vary by state. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. You know, I mentioned uh, Judge Napolitano in the last segment, and uh, I don't want to springboard from that into a piece of his that was published earlier today on LewRockwell.com, another great resource for wrong thinkers. Now, look, consistency in our principles is an essential part of personal integrity, but that does not mean that it's easy to be consistent. For instance, how many people uh, complain when the president tries to force mandates via executive order, but then turn around and cheer when a governor does the same thing to prohibit those mandates? Hopefully you understand what I'm talking about. Well, Judge Napolitano has a very thought-provoking take on how edicts are not the same thing as laws, even when they favor our side 
in a particular battle. Napolitano says it's distressing for those of us who believe that the Constitution means what it says to observe the destruction of liberty caused by vaccine mandates. On one side of this destruction are those whose opposition to vaccines finds comfort in the executive orders of Texas Governor uh, Greg Abbott, who purported to prohibit private businesses in Texas, from mom-and-pop stores to Fortune 100 conglomerates, from requiring their employees to prove COVID-19 vaccinations in order to use the employer's private property. On the other side of this chasm are supporters of President Joseph R. Biden, who announced last month that he plans to order the Department of Labor to compel all employers in America of 100 or more persons to require their employees to prove vaccination against COVID-19 on the employer's private property. So one edict prohibits behavior on private property. The other edict compels behavior on private property. But both violate liberty. In neither case has the issuer of these edicts sought legislation to accomplish his goals. Abbott wants to protect the employees' rights of conscience who reject vaccines, but he's done so by invading the sovereignty of private property and business judgment. The former allows the legal occupier of private property to decline to obey any regulation not properly enacted into law that tells him how to use his property. The latter allows the owner of a business to make business judgments free from government interference. So the president as well has threatened, as of this writing, he's not published his executive order, nor has the Labor Department promulgated any regulations consistent with the threatened order to interfere with private property and with business judgment. Now, Napolitano says both the governor and the president have violated basic rights in order to accomplish their goals, and neither has abided by the Constitution that both have sworn to uphold. Can they do this? Here's the backstory. He says, when the Constitution was drafted at a secret convention in Philadelphia in 1787, the states that sent delegates were expecting proposed amendments to the Articles of Confederation. Instead, the convention produced a new constitution with vast opportunities for expansive federal power. However, the core of the constitution is the separation of power. Now, that wasn't a novel idea. It already existed in the 13 states. The separation of powers requires only that Congress writes the laws, even if uh, and only the president enforces them, and only the judiciary decides what they mean and if they are consistent with the Constitution. Now, when the modern Supreme Court addressed this, it ruled that separation was not created to protect the hegemony of each co-equal branch of government, but rather to prevent the accumulation of too much power in any one branch, at the expense of Americans' personal liberty, by enabling each branch to be a check on the other two. Now, the court has also held those branches may not cede power to one another. In plain English, that means the president cannot write the laws, the courts cannot enforce them, and Congress cannot interpret them, even by the consent of the branches. Tucked into the Constitution is the Guarantee Clause. This requires that the states must have a Republican, as in lower R, lowercase r, form of government. Stated differently, the states must also employ the separation of powers with the same legislative, executive, and judicial separation as the federal government. Now, back to the Texas governor and the president and their mandates. 
by issuing edicts that purport to regulate the use of private property. Both Governor Abbott and President Biden have violated the natural law of property and the Constitution. The natural law states that the very definition of private property excludes the lawful owner or occupier of the property to enables rather the lawful owner or occupier of the property to exclude whomever he wants, including government, from his property. So when the Texas Rangers or inspectors from the Federal Department of Labor come onto private property to see if the Abbott order or the Department of Labor order, if it comes, are being honored, the occupier of the property, the employer, should not admit them. Now what about public policy? Well, Napolitano says that can only be established by the legislative branch of government, not by executive edicts. Which brings us to the other grave violation committed by both Abbott and Biden, the violation of the separation of powers. Since Congress can only write laws that interfere with Congress, with commerce, rather, and in Texas, only the legislature can do so, these executive edicts are void. Do you see what he's saying here? We have a conservative Republican governor and a liberal Democratic president effectively doing the same thing. Both are regulating private property without legislation. Now, of course, even if they had legislation, all regulations of private property are presumed void under the natural law and are unconstitutional unless the government can prove fault by the owner and harm to someone else. And self-ownership of our bodies precludes all compelled vaccinations, even those legislatively authorized. Good to remember that. So Napolitano says Abbott has issued and Biden has threatened to issue edicts affecting the use of private property, then calling the edicts laws and engaging law enforcement to compel compliance. So if you call a tail a leg, how many legs does a dog have? Most people would say five. No, the answer is four. Because calling a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. In the very same sense, calling an edict the law doesn't make it the law. Edicts issued by the executive are unworthy of compliance if they purport to create new law or assault property rights or personal liberty. And the law enforcement personnel who took the same oath as the Texas governor and the president to uphold the Constitution should decline to enforce them. Now, if we tolerate fundamental violations of our rights when they temporarily please us, we lack the intellectual honesty to resist all violations. Why do we tolerate any violations of natural rights or of the Constitution by those whom we have hired to protect them? This is one of the things I do love about Judge Napolitano. He is consistent in his principles. Got a link to it in the show notes. I hope you'll check it out. I also hope you will take a moment and click on the link lifesavingfood.com. It's right there in the show notes, and they are one of my prime sponsors. And I, I, don't, I don't want to try to scare people. You know, time is short. The apocalypse is coming. Do you have your food storage? I don't think you should be operating out of fear. I think you should be operating out of, you know what? It makes sense that we would want to have some long-term food storage put away. We're talking 25-year shelf life, you know, for a time where there isn't plenty or a time where it's difficult to get the things that we need. Well, they've got some great packages to choose from. 
whether you're looking for, you know, the equivalent of a 72-hour kit or whether you're looking for something, you know, more substantial like a full food storage program. Be advised, food prices are going up. This is affecting the food storage industry as well. So, I mean, you can wait for what you hope is a more opportune time. I can promise you the prices will be higher. It's just a fact of where we are right now. But selection is good. My listeners get a 20% discount by using my name, H-Y-D-E. Just put hide in as your coupon code, and you'll get a wonderful discount courtesy of lifesavingfood.com. Check them out. They're in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Thanks again for being part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. Couple quick things I want to make you aware of. If you get value from the various stories that I share here, and, you know, I realize not everybody has time to sit and listen to uh, the full two hours of show that I do Monday through Friday, but I do publish show notes each time that I do the show. And if you want to visit my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, you got a couple of options there. You can subscribe. It's free of charge, and I will email you my show notes every time I publish them. If you're another radio host and you want to, you know, skip on your show prep, hey, this might be, you know, <clears throat> a great way to go. I'm, I'm doing the hard work of finding hopefully worthwhile topics. You also, if you find value in this program, can become a supporter. You can become an actual subscriber and either a monthly supporter or a yearly supporter. I've got some nice perks for those who are yearly supporters. In fact, I just got in another shipment of my Wrong Thinker mugs. So... Consider it and and know that it's greatly appreciated. I appreciate your support. Particularly, I appreciate you listening in the first place. And and I wanted to share something with you about, uh, about being a quitter. I know that has a very negative connotation, right? It's almost, nobody's going to tell their kid, honey, you need to be a quitter. <laughs> we, we tell our kids exactly the opposite. But I'm going to suggest that if you find yourself feeling overwhelmed, And if you find yourself feeling hopeless from all the division that we see around us, there's a way to fix that. And it starts with quitting putting so much emphasis on politics and working on being a good person instead. Now, in my day-to-day search for interesting and hopefully relevant content, I visit a number of different uh, websites, news aggregators, and even discussion boards, just because I know there are people out there way smarter than me who have an interesting take on things. And sometimes these, dis- these discussions span a really wide range of topics, from history to how to cook a particular dish to where to find a good deal on wool socks or what was the best song of the 1960s. By far... Politics seems to be the common driver of most discussion. And I suspect it's like that in many corners of the online world. Well, some time ago, what caught my attention was a post by a very longtime respected member of a gun discussion board. And he announced that a heavy burden had been lifted from his shoulders, and he went on to explain that he had decided not to participate in any more political discussions. 
Now, as a recovering political junkie, that got my attention. Because it was fascinating to see another person who had lived and breathed politics for many years reach that point of diminishing returns. That's not an easy thing to admit. Come on, after decades of conversational and emotional and intellectual investment, it's pretty tough to admit all that effort probably changed very few minds. And I was particularly struck by this individual's recognition that he hadn't even realized the conspicuous load that he'd been carrying until the moment he chose to set it aside. And with that shocking realization came the recognition he could have set it aside at any time. He said there was no legitimate value found in having spent decades of his life talking about all the gory details of corruption of certain politicians and political parties and special interests. In fact, as I recall, he said focusing primarily on political malevolence and negativity had in many ways made him a more negative person. And the question that he asked was very insightful. Because he asked himself, what if I had invested all that research and conversation into things that uplifted myself and others? I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question. Or if you've ever come to the same kind of realization that he did. But upon coming to that realization, he then resolved to shift his focus to fixing things over which he has actual influence. Starting with himself, his family, and the truly important relationships in his life. And he committed to ramping up his efforts to positively influence people around him, rather than simply argue with them. Now that story struck a chord with me because I recognize that uh, I've walked this very same path and actually come to a very similar conclusion. I learned very early on in my talk radio career that there is a very large and loyal audience that loves to be told who they need to be angry with and what to fear. And the more red meat that I threw and the more demons that I gave them to wrestle, the more my audience loved me and listened to me. But there came a point where I found myself asking, is this accomplishing anything worthwhile? Because fear and enemy-driven folks weren't being motivated uh, so much by evil or stupidity as just that need to define themselves by what they were against rather than what they were for. And by the way, that tendency isn't limited to any one side of the political spectrum. I think one of the hardest things that any of us will ever come to understand is that it's always going to be easier to feel good about just proclaiming yourself to be against something. I'm against slavery. I am against people being evil. That's easy to do. You don't really have to even have skin in the game. And it's much harder to actively live an uplifting and righteous life. In fact, if I could paraphrase Chesterton, it's not that such an approach has been been tried and found wanting. It's that it's been tried and found difficult. But there's a world of difference between these two approaches. And I understand as well as anybody, getting caught up in political bickering is so easy to do. Virtually every one of our information delivery platforms is saturated by politics. No wonder so many people appear to struggle with feelings of hopelessness. For some, it's become what writer Claire Wolf has described as a daily dread supplement. 
And we can become addicted to the need to feel fearful or angry. Over time, it becomes part of our routine. We depend on it. Get up in the morning, got to check the headlines. I got to know what I'm mad about today. All right, well, breaking that cycle of dependency first requires the the willingness to admit that there's a problem. So if we find ourselves constantly arguing with others or complaining about them or even feeling the need to confront the ones who hold a different point of view, the sad truth is the deficiency is in us, not them. And that's because the majority of political discussions have turned into a form of competition that's rooted in pride. I mean, think about it. We're kept artificially divided by politicians and their enablers who are trying to consolidate power over us by keeping us constantly looking for favors for our tribe and chastisement for everybody else. Whoever described politics these days as just, you know, it's a means of punishing those who disagree with you. That seems to sum it up. But when we step outside the box and we forge connections based on commonalities, we reduce the power of those politicians. We reduce their influence over us. More importantly, we become the kinds of individuals and neighbors who can be counted on by the people around us. Isn't that worth more? Our constructive actions will do far more to earn the trust of others than will our ability to put them in their place either online or in the real world. So if you found yourself feeling a sense of hopelessness at the irrationality that is taking root all around us, this is where hope can be found. It starts with recognizing that individual goodness backed by principled action will move mountains that angry words never will. I'm so grateful to people like Paul Rosenberg probably one of the most influential writers that I've encountered. And, and, and he has a very simple approach. Do you want to have influence? Do you, do you want to be able to speak to people who are, are brainwashed? And I say that with the understanding that we're all brainwashed. If you want to be able to influence people in a very positive way, it starts with losing the need to win. If you got to put people in their place, I say this with all the love in my heart. You're not coming at this from a good place. And you may end up actually doing more harm than good. Got to tame that pride. Got to lose that need to dominate people and to make them admit, I'm right. I'm right and you're wrong. The purpose of a discussion, even a spirited discussion, should be that both parties are able to go away at the end wiser for having participated in it. Whether their minds have changed, that's irrelevant. That wasn't really the purpose, was it? The purpose should have been to help each of us see better what we may not be seeing. And just because someone is standing at a different vantage point doesn't immediately mean they are your ideological or, you know, otherwise enemy. Too much enemy-driven thinking. So consider becoming a quitter if you find political thinking is taking just a little bit too much of your time. I can tell you from experience, there's a lot of happiness in this approach. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
First, we decide where we want to go. Then we need to know the best way to get there. Hi, my name is Adam Barada. I'm the owner of Advantage Gold. We're the highest rated precious metals firm in the country. We teach people how to own physical gold and silver. Now, we've won the Best of TrustLink Award four years in a row because we educate our clients on how to buy gold and silver the right way. We don't pay celebrity spokespeople millions of dollars. We'd rather pass that value on to you. Call 800-900-8000 and speak with one of our experts. We'll send you a free gold kit along with my latest number one national best-selling book, The Great Devaluation. Call 800-900-8000. That's 800-900-8000. Get the best information, the best process, the best service, the best value. Call Advantage Gold at 800-900-8000. Call 800-900-8000. I'm Dinesh D'Souza. If you are a homeowner, you need to consider a mortgage refinance while rates are still low. I mean it. You could miss out on hundreds of dollars in monthly savings. Don't let that happen. Call American Financing, America's home for home loans, and take advantage of a free mortgage review. There's no pressure, no upfront or hidden fees. They're not like that. This is a company that's in it for you, doing whatever it takes to save you up to $1,000 a month. Without resetting your loan. Because at American Financing, they can write any term, 10 years and over. So don't put a refinance off any longer. Pre-qualify for free by calling 888-528-1219. That's 888-528-1219. Or visit AmericanFinancing.net. American Financing, NMLS 182334, NMLSConsumerAccess.org. Hi, I'm Wayne Alaroot for Patriot VPN. Patriot VPN is a virtual private network service that uses military-grade encryption to protect your Internet connection on all of your devices. With Patriot VPN, your data and Internet privacy is secure anywhere in the world. Why do you need Patriot VPN? Cyber criminals, government, even your own Internet service provider collect and use your private information without your knowledge. Examples in the news recently, remember all the companies that have been hacked? Cuba censored the Internet to kill protests. Here in America, conservative groups are being actively targeted. Your personal information and internet history is being sold by your ISP. It's all happening every day, but not with Patriot VPN. With Patriot VPN, your internet activity and history is protected from prying eyes forever. Patriot VPN is a veteran-owned business right here in the USA. For business or your family, starting at only $6.95 a month, use code WAR and get three months free with an annual subscription. It's all at PatriotVPN.com. That's PatriotVPN.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. A quick shout-out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. They are located at 619 South Bluff Street. You can call 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. These are the folks to talk to if you are shopping for a home in the great state of Utah. They can help you. Most importantly, they can help you without delay. If you go to my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com, there is an email link that will take you directly to Heather Turner at Patriot Home Mortgage. 
So here's an interesting story. This one kind of blew me away. But do you remember the time when cochlear implants became a viable way to help the deaf hear? I was very fortunate in that uh, I had a neighbor when I lived in St. George whose uh, two daughters were, were born deaf. And uh, these girls were among the early recipients, this would have been in the late 90s, of, uh, of these cochlear implants. Fascinating stuff. And I mean, I look at this as miraculous. Whoever came up with it, man, man what a brilliant, brilliant solution. But I had no idea that there were certain groups of hearing impaired people who fought these implants as being destructive to deaf culture. <clears throat> Found a great article here by Steve Saylor called The Grateful Deaf. Kind of a nice play on words. And Steve Saylor says the FDA's approval in 1990 of cochlear implants that enable some of the deaf to hear set off a political struggle. And on one side were the hearing parents of deaf children who tend to assume that five senses are better than four. On the other side were deaf civil rights activists who saw technological fixes for an identity they didn't view as needing repair as stigmatizing and even genocidal toward deaf culture. Now, curiously, this uh, clear predecessor of the Great Awakening, the promotion of deafness as equal to hearing, has never quite taken off the way crazier manias like transgenderism have. Sympathy for the deaf would seem natural, but other identity groups attract more allies these days. The high points of deaf activism were the 1988 and 2006 student strikes at federally funded Gallaudet University for the Deaf in Washington, D.C. over plans to appoint as president persons not fully fluent in American Sign Language. Now, in contrast to residential schools for Canadian Indians, which are now the worst thing ever, boarding schools for the deaf are prized by activists as the font of deaf culture because it's where deaf children can talk to each other in sign language. Yet deaf militants over the cochlear menace appears to have faded somewhat in recent years, even at residential schools. And by the way, he says, when I'm using the term deaf in this article, I'm referring only to those who were deaf as children, like Helen Keller, not adult-onset deaf people like Beethoven. Steve Saylor says, I hadn't thought about deaf demands for a while until reading geneticist Catherine Page Harden's new book, The Genetic Lottery, in which she enthusiastically cites, perhaps to show that uh, eugenics can be woke, two deaf lesbians who are trying to find a congenitally deaf sperm donor to help one of them conceive a deaf child for, as they say, the culture. And he says, then I was reminded again by a New York Times op-ed, Fear of a Deaf Planet, complaining that hearing people don't learn sign language. But even that was phrased in less abrasive language than the typical identity politics manifesto. The quote says, rather than a purely curative focus, we should be attempting to eradicate the stigma that surrounds hearing loss. Now, Saylor says much of the argument for spreading sign language would seemingly fit in well with current obsessions such as remodeling American society, the Spanish language, and human nature in general to suit the whims of the differently gendered. And yet, he says, I was struck by how seldom we lately, how seldom lately we hear about the deaf community and their fears of eradication by technological progress. Not long ago, deaf replacement theory was a big deal among the deaf. It's been drowned out, though, by more fashionable entities. 
Indeed, the Times commenters were largely dismissive, brusquely pointing out that learning sign language is time-consuming and that the deaf are a small minority, so why should they get special consideration when there are more practical projects to undertake? Empathy for the deaf, apparently not a high priority these days. So he says it's useful to think about why there is a deaf culture but not blind culture. Wikipedia's article on the former is vastly longer than its short squib on the latter, which sums up blind people integrate with the broader community and culture and often do not identify blindness as the defining part of their culture. That's because language can be essential to identity. Just as nationalism in Europe was an offshoot of the consolidation of local spoken dialects into a standardized national written language, such as the French government's imposition of the Parisian dialect on its sprawling domain, Deaf culture exists due to the consolidation of sign languages. Now, Steve Saylor says language is fundamental to communication, of course, and perhaps even to thought. So life tended to be extremely difficult for those born deaf, especially if they didn't work out an idiosyncratic sign language with their families. The term, the term dumb, as in deaf and dumb, referred to an inability to speak but it has the connotation of stupidity as well. In some cases, this was the bigotry of the times, but it also connoted an unfortunate tendency. Children who miss the language development window can wind up cognitively impaired for life. How do you carry on a monologue in your head without words? Now, granted, some people get by fine in life without talking to themselves silently, but in general, it's a necessary and useful skill. Fortunately, there exist Sign languages. According to neurologist Oliver Sacks, many signers conduct their internal monologues by picturing fingers moving in their mind's eye. That's, that's interesting. I would not have considered that. Fairly sophisticated sign languages can more or less spontaneously arise in communities with a high percentage of congenitally deaf children due to inbreeding, such as on 18th century Martha's Vineyard, which the deaf movement sees as its utopia because deafness was so common that the hearing learns sign language too. Or in the Al-Sayed Bedouin village in modern Israel. But for most rural deaf children without a critical mass of neighboring signers to interact with, lack of language development could be a lifelong impediment. So Europeans began formally documenting sign languages over the last few centuries. In the West, most deaf children now have access to a very well-developed language of, or system of signs. Now, similarly, or strikingly rather, a sign language can be orthogonal to the local spoken language. For example, American sign language is not speaking English with your fingers. In fact, it's not English at all. Thus, when in England, ASL signers are linguistically isolated from British signers as English-only speakers are when trying to talk to the French. ASL is an offshoot of French sign language. So American signers can communicate with the local deaf when they're visiting France. Indeed, deaf activism is rather reminiscent of the successful effort by French Canadians in the late 1960s to protect their language identity by wringing major concessions from the Canadian government. Now, was that progressive or defensive? Likewise, ASL-only speakers can be highly protective of their culture. Some fear its eradication by cochlear implants. Somewhat as many lesbians fear that the current population of sex change therapies among butch girls threatens the long-term existence of their sexual orientation. 
But Steve Saylor says it remains puzzling why deaf identity, like lesbianism, is not in fashion in a time of fervent identity politics. Now, one possibility is that the deaf, due to their speech difficulties, not to mention their lack of musical ability, are not cool in the age of TikTok. Moreover, the deaf are perhaps not as articulate in writing on average. IQ studies tend to find that the deaf have some advantages in visual-spatial reasoning, rather like the blind are more likely to have perfect pitch. But the deaf tend to lag in memory-related details or skills. Sign languages are a blessing, but perhaps not as efficient for some mental purposes as speech languages. Much of the current, current transgender fad is enabled and even inflated by parents who think they're doing their children a favor, but... Steve Saylor says outside of a few hardcore deaf culture fanatics like Harden's lesbians, and they are rare because a large majority of deaf children have hearing parents, most parents see deafness as a misfortune they wish to alleviate. And doctors can make honest money doing cochlear implants. So, over time, there are fewer deaf children. Now he says, on the other hand, you know, who knows what bad ideas might get spread next on social media. For example, besides deciding they are boys... Moody teenage girls have lately been coming down with fake Tourette syndrome ever since a YouTube influencer in Germany got big on the internet in 2019 by exaggerating his affliction. So deafness is not in style at the moment, but Steve Saylor says never say never these days. I got a link to the article in the show notes. Check it out for yourself at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.